You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world uh, am I going to preach a Christmas sermon out of Revelation 12? Well, I'm glad you're wondering that, because that's exactly what we're going to do today. It's like uh, folks are thinking, okay, um, I know a little bit about Revelation. I know it talks about, you know, kind of how God is going to wrap everything up. Uh, the book of Revelation is the unveiling. Uh, it's the unveiling of of Jesus and all of his power and authority, his, his kingdom. And that uh, point of the book is that, well, he wins. And those who follow him win over darkness, over sin, over death, um, and over this cursed world. Trust me, when I, when I came to this text months ago, um, putting this series together, I'm like, okay, Lord, um, I'm always going to roll with him. I'm going to go with him wherever he leads me to go. So let's jump into Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at verse 1. I'm going to read the first six verses this morning. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for her by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Father, we are so thankful, so thankful to be able to be gathered here today. Um, Father, we recognize that in our county right now that there are many, many, many people who are sick. With COVID-19 and all the pressure that that's putting on families, and, and Father, we just want to pray for each one of them now, for every, every adult, every child, every teen, every senior adult that's struggling with this. We just want to lift them up. Father, we look forward to the day where COVID-19 is no longer part of our vocabulary. Father, we know that day's coming. We trust you. We follow you by faith. We know that living in a broken world, there are all kinds of things happening that bring pain and discomfort into our life. And Father, COVID-19 is just another example of just how broken this world is. But Father, our eyes and our heart are turned towards you this morning. We want to worship you. We want to honor you. Guide us in your word this morning. And Father, our, our goal this morning is to exalt you. Guide us this morning. Help us to see the world with maybe a fresh perspective. Father, maybe we're not seeing things as they really are. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give us guidance today. We love you. We thank you. We seek your face. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I was uh, doing a little science investigation here into something that every one of us have that you may not be aware of. If you were to take a little three-by-five index card 
And on the right side of that card, do a little circle. And on the left side of that card, do a little X. You take that card, you hold it in your hand out in front of your face, arm's length, and you cover your right eye. So you hold it with this hand, cover your right eye. Then I want you to, to focus your attention on the right-hand circle that you drew on the card. And then move that card closer to your face. If you keep your eye, if you keep your focus on the right-hand circle that you drew on that card, eventually, usually at about right about here, the X on the left side of the card completely disappears. You can't see it. Uh, scientists and eye doctors and doctors and folks in medicine tell us that we have a blind spot, that every single one of us have it. It may be at a different point, but every single person in this room has a blind spot. Now, if you've been playing basketball or baseball or uh, volleyball and a ball hits you in the face that you never even saw coming, it could have been that it came in where your blind spot is. The reason we have a blind spot is in the back of your eye, there's a, there's a retina. And that retina is gathering all the light that is coming into your eyeball right now. And that retina is connected to your brain through a bundle of nerves. And that, those nerves carry those visions of light to your brain. And then your brain kind of takes those light, those things that are coming into your eyeball, and turns them into pictures that, that you can see. It's incredible, really, when you think about it, how God has developed our brain and our eye to be able to do this. But right where that bundle of nerves attaches to the, to the retina, where those nerves attach, there are no receptors. In other words, any light that comes in right where those nerves attach, your eye doesn't see it at all. So basically, when light comes in at just the right angle and hits your retina, and when it hits at that point where the nerves connect to your retina, you don't see it. Now, your brain does something really amazing. Your brain takes the last images that came into your mind or came in and, and hit properly, and your brain uh, translated those images. Your brain has this ability that even when you're looking at a certain angle and you've got that blind spot, your brain will put together what was in the background of what you saw previously. In other words, when you're looking at that card, although you don't see the X on the card, everything in the background is still kind of filled in. You can see it in your peripheral vision. So your brain builds a picture so that it's not just completely blank of what you saw previously. I think that's just incredible. Now, you may be wondering, okay, now I'm really confused. You're in Revelation and you're talking about a blind spot. The reason I'm doing that is because I believe not only do we have a physical blind spot, but I am convinced that we've got a spiritual blind spot. And it's pretty big. There is in our world right now, and has been since, well, the fall, a spiritual warfare that is raging. Now, you can't see it with your physical eye. Uh, you can't see all that is taking place, but but no doubt, you see the manifestation of the spiritual battle that is happening all around you. It could be that, that your marriage is suffering because of it. It could be that your kids are, are turning away from the faith and you're seeing something going on here. We, and we look at it and we begin to think, well, it's just the circumstances of life. It's just the cards I've been dealt. It's just coincidence. It's just, well, life. Oftentimes we'll say something like this, well, it just is what it is. But I believe that because of this spiritual blind spot that we've got, we're missing something here. I think it's because we've not been trained or equipped to see it for what it really is. And I think there is real danger, real danger, more than just a ball hitting you in the face. I think there is real danger when we have a spiritual blind spot in our life where we're not seeing what's really going on. The Apostle John has been put in a boiling pot of oil as punishment for his faith in Jesus. He's in his 80s. He's, this man's 80 years old. And if you remember the Apostle John, he was 
part of that inner three that walked with Jesus very closely. He, he's the only one that walked all the way to the cross with Jesus. He's the only one of all the disciples that were there. All the people who followed Jesus, John's the only one. He's there with Jesus' mother, Mary. He, he was one of the first ones to see the empty tomb. He, he was in the upper room when Jesus appeared after the resurrection. John is described as the beloved, that there was a very special relationship between Jesus and John. And John has been thrown on an island called Patmos simply because he loves Jesus. And this island was almost like a prison, a pretty good one at that. You, you get dropped out on this island, you had no way off. It was a barren island, too. It was a really, really hard place to live and survive. And John, in his 80s, is on this island, and he, he, he's on the island one day, and he hears a voice behind him, and it, it scares him, and he turns, and he finds that it's Jesus who is speaking to him, is going to give him a vision, and that is what we have in the book of Revelation. It is a, it's an unveiling of God's final plan for humanity and for the world as we know it. Also, I think that the book of Revelation is one of the greatest worship books that we've got in the New Testament. We see Jesus high and lifted up. We see people falling on their face before Jesus. We see Jesus presented as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, but also the lamb who has given his life for the sheep. But not only that, one who will come and conquer, who's coming back one day with all victory, with all power, and that the curse that is upon this world will finally be lifted. Last week we talked about where Jesus, speaking about himself, 18 times in the Gospel of John says, this is why I came. He said that He came to be the light of the world. He said that He came to be the bread that lasts forever. He, he said that He came to give a life and give life more abundantly. Jesus said over and over why He came. So we see that Jesus had purpose in why He came. He had a mission to accomplish. But what I want to point out to you today is there was someone else with a mission. Someone, out, someone else with a great purpose. Someone else who's been working all down through time and space to work out his mission upon this earth. Look at verse 1. As we take a look at this text together, a couple of things I want to show you this morning and that there is a conflict raging. This imagery that we're going to see in chapter 12 is very much like what you see in the best, rest of the book of Revelation, symbolic. There is images that John is describing, but... There's, there's more going on here than just the images that he's giving us. There's a lot more going on. So what I want to do is I want to look at this woman. I want to look at this red dragon that he describes. And I want to look at this son who came. And we, we're going to try to identify who these people are in this vision. And by identifying them, we're going to see a great conflict. We're going to see a great conflict that's been raging ever since Genesis chapter 3. It still rages today. And you may be surprised who the target is today. You may be surprised that, that you, living your life, doing what God's called you to do, that you are a target of who's described in this particular text. Look at verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. John, all through uh, the book of Revelation, stops and he pauses and he gives us a little context as to what he was seeing. We don't know exactly how this all played out in front of John. I don't know if he looks up into the sky and some humongous screen or some humongous parting of the clouds parts where he sees all of this imagery that he's describing laid out in front of him. What's important is the images that he saw. Notice this. He said, a woman clothed with sun with the moon under her feet and on her head was a crown of 12 stars. Now, this is really peculiar language. What does it mean that he saw a woman who, who has 
uh, who's clothed with the sun. Well, I think we can describe that as a, as a woman who is so bright that she, she's, John's having a hard time even looking at her. If you can imagine staring at the sun, that doesn't work out very well. It's not something you want to do very much. But apparently, this image of this woman is so bright and so powerful that it's, he describes it as, as sun, that she's wearing sunlight around her. Then he says that there's moon under her feet. Maybe there's some lesser light under her feet. Maybe he's seeing the actual moon. But what we're seeing here is a person with, with great influence, with, with great pomp and circumstance connected to this particular sign. It says that she has a crown of 12 stars upon her head. The, the number 12 is very important all through the Bible. And if we remember back to the Old Testament, if you remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And then when we get into the New Testament church and we get into Jesus calling His disciples, He calls 12 disciples to follow Him. 12 is a very interesting number. Look at verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So not only is this woman a bright image, not only is she sown with, with great authority and great influence, but she's sown as, as, as being pregnant and even at the moment of giving birth as John sees this image. She is crying out in pain and agony and giving birth. Verse 3, And another son appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour that child. Now, I want to hold off on the woman just a minute. I'm going to come back to who the woman is, but I want to go ahead and identify who this great dragon is. As a matter of fact, John identifies who this dragon is for us. Look at verse 9 in chapter 12. He says here, And that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now you may be at this particular point beginning to kind of step back. Because you may be of the persuasion or the thinking that, that Satan is not a literal being, that he is some kind of idea for the, the idea of evil, that he's not really a real entity, that he's not a real being, that he just represents evil, that he's symbolic for all that's broken and messed up in the world. If you take that position, you are in complete opposition to the whole of Scripture from all 66 books. The entire Bible speaks of a literal being called Satan, that he is real, that he is a deceiver, that he is a liar, that he does have power, that he is causing all kinds of chaos upon this earth. He is not wearing a red suit. He's not got red horns on his head. He's not down in hell throwing coal into an oven that we all grew up, or my generation grew up watching cartoons with Bugs Bunny, right? He's not some little, little being sitting on your shoulder. He is a real being that is walking upon this earth, and he is causing your marriage trouble. He's causing your job trouble. He's the reason for the diagnosis that you've got of the sickness that you've got. It all has its roots back in the deception that happened in the garden, that this world has fallen, and the reason this world has fallen is because two people disobeyed and listened to this old serpent all the way back in a garden. The reason your loved ones died the reason you're going to die is because of what happened in that garden. It was a curse that came upon us and the world. This particular dragon, none other than Satan, I want you to see the imagery that John gives us here. He's pacing. He's anxious. He's, he's awaiting the birth of this child. Not so that he can celebrate 
but so that he can devour, that he can destroy, that as soon as this child is born, this dragon is waiting, pacing, impatiently waiting for the moment that this child is born. Well, who is this child? Verse 6. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled to the wilderness. So who is the son? Well, the son can be none other. There's no one else in time, space, Scripture that fits this description. There's only one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He's talked about in the book of Isaiah. He's talked about in the book of Jeremiah. He's talked about in the Minor Prophets of His kingdom and of His rule. It's none other than Jesus Christ. So now that we have the identity of the serpent, the devil, Satan, and that we have the identity of the child who is born... Who is the woman? Well, there's a few theories about that. Uh, Catholics believe that the woman is none other than Mary. That Mary, uh, in her exalted state, is the one that is being seen in this imagery. I disagree with that. Nowhere in the New Testament is Mary exalted. Nowhere in Scripture is, is Mary seen other than just a peasant girl who was obedient as a teenager to what God had called her to do. She is not exalted. She is not put on a pedestal. She should not be worshipped. Any worship that is diverted away from Jesus towards Mary, well, that's wrong, no matter how you want to put it. Now, that may bother some of you who may come from a Catholic background, but I don't see anywhere in Scripture where Mary is to be worshipped. So I don't think it's Mary. Nowhere is Mary said that she has moon under her feet, clothed with the sun. Nowhere do we see her in that state. So I don't think it's Mary. The other option is, is maybe it's the church. Maybe John saw an image of the church, and the church is the one that is being pictured here. Well, I don't think that fits either, because Jesus gave birth to the church. The church didn't give birth to Jesus. Jesus came before the church. So I don't think that works. I'll tell you what I think it is. There are two places in the Old Testament where this kind of imagery is given. Uh, one is in uh, Genesis chapter 37 when Joseph had that dream and he's telling his brothers about the dream and that one day they would all bow down to him. He mentions the moon and the stars. In the Song of Solomon, Solomon describing his love for his Shulamite bride. He talks about that bride having, uh, being lit up like the sun and, and just being precious and being valuable. And he uses the same kind of imagery. That's the only two places. Here's what I think. Who gave birth to Jesus? Who, who was the reason that Jesus came? None other than the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. If you go all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, he says to Abraham, Abraham, your offspring is going to be a blessing to the entire world. Not just the children of Israel, the children of Abraham, but there would be one specific son that would be born. He would then be a blessing to all people, whether they be Jew or Gentile. If you go back to Genesis 3, God saying to Adam and Eve after they had sinned in the garden, the serpent is there. He had lied to Adam and Eve. He had told them that God could not be trusted. He told them that, that God was, was keeping something from them, that they should be able to eat whatever they want to eat, that they, they should take power and control, that they should be the king of their life. They shouldn't have to surrender to God. And they listened, and they disobeyed. And because of that, death came into the world. Sickness came into the world. They were kicked out of the guard. But in that process of God handing out the punishment, he says something very unique in Genesis 3, 16 and 17. He says that while Satan is there, he looks at Satan and he says, one day there's going to be an offspring of Adam and Eve. And this offspring, you're going to bruise his heel. 
He, he looks at Satan and says, Satan, you're going to, you're going to inflict some damage on him. You're going to bring some pain to him. But get this, Satan, he's going to crush your head. Now, on that very day, Satan began anticipating and looking for the one who would come who would crush his head. The same one that, that John is seeing here in, John, or in Revelation 12 about this, this king, this male child who was born, who will rule the nations. That same child was the one that Satan's been anticipating generation after generation. As a matter of fact, Satan began to look exactly for that child almost immediately. It happens in Genesis 4. You probably remember the story. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They have some children. Two sons, Cain and Abel. And as Cain and Abel go about their life, Abel has a desire to worship God and honor God with, with everything that he has. But Cain looks at Abel's life and he begins to get jealous of him, begins to have hatred towards his brother. Now you could say that this is all circumstance. You could say it's just two brothers that can't get along. You could say that maybe this, this Cain, this this brother has such bitterness and anger in his heart towards his brother that, that it's going to lead him to do some evil things. You could say it's all circumstances, but I would offer to you that Satan began looking for that offspring almost immediately, and the first place he looks is Cain and Abel. And when he looks at Abel's life, he sees Abel who's worshiping and honoring God, and Satan begins to think, you know, I wonder if that's the promised child. I wonder if that's the one that's going to crush my head. He begins to use Cain's anger and bitterness towards his own brother. And eventually, Cain is going to come to the conclusion that he must kill his brother. The first murder. We're just right after the fall. We don't know how much time passed, but it hadn't been long. And now we have hatred to such a degree from one brother towards another that he's contemplating murder. And God comes to Cain and says to Cain, Cain, Satan is crouching outside your door and he desires to have you. Cain decides that his brother doesn't deserve to live and kills his brother in cold blood. Circumstances? Two brothers that can't get along? Or is this Satan working? Is this, is this the blind spot that I'm talking about? Are we, are we explaining things away rather than seeing it for what it really is? Well, it doesn't end there. Get over to, uh, to Genesis 6. Guess what happens? The whole world is corrupt. Hatred for one another. Hatred towards God increases and increases and increases. And Satan, no doubt, is laughing. No doubt Satan is saying, see, I'm in control. But then there's Noah and his family. And God takes Noah. Noah builds an ark. and Whoever's welcome, whoever, whoever decides to, to come into the ark is welcome, and nobody does, it's just him and his family. God closes the door, and God judges the earth and wipes out the entire human race except for who's on that ark. Move forward a little further. Things just continue to get worse. Israel in Exodus 1 is enslaved in Egypt. A new Pharaoh comes to ch in charge, and he no longer cares anything about the Jewish people. And then he begins to realize that the Jewish people are growing in such numbers that he's got to do something, that eventually the, the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation is going to be so large, they're going to be a threat to the Egyptian kingdom. So the Pharaoh in Exodus 1, he decides that he's going to give an edict. And here's what he says. He says, okay, we're going to kill all of the sons 
of the Israelites. We're just going to kill them all. All the small boys, we're going to kill them all. Can you imagine the hatred, the sickness in a person's heart? As a king who would just say, without even thinking about it, that we're going to kill infants, any infant boys we can find, we're going to put them to death. We're going to drag them out. We're going to pull them away from their Jewish mothers, take them out in front of their house, and take a sword and stick through their body. Infants? Where in the world does that kind of evil come from? Where does it, does it come from Pharaoh? Is Pharaoh such a bad guy? Is he such an evil guy? Is he such a jealous man that he's willing to kill innocent children to accomplish his goal? Well, yeah, but where did that come from? Could it be that Satan is still at work trying to kill off the offspring of the nation of Israel? Is it possible that he is still at work trying to stop this son from being born because he knows that this son is going to come from the descendants of Abraham. Well, you fast forward some more. We get to the book of Esther. Esther chapter 3. Another ruler by the name of Haman says, you know what? These Jewish people are nothing but a plague. They'd be better off dead. So he begins to plot to kill the Jewish people. I'm talking the entire, I'm not talking about children, I'm talking about the entire race. And there just happens to be a young woman there by the name of Esther, who God has placed for such a time as that. And Esther, through Mordecai, figures out what's about to happen. And Esther takes a great risk. She's obedient to God. And through her obedience, God spares the entire nation. Fast forward a little bit more, King David. As Satan learns more and more about this coming child, as the prophets speak, Satan begins to learn. You've got to understand something. Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't have all the power that God does. He's not on the same level as God. He doesn't know everything. So he's learning and he's, and he's observing. And he notices that the prophets begin to say that the, the Messiah who will come, he will be in the line of David. Well, isn't that interesting? So, David is now being targeted by Saul. One day, Saul just throws a spear at him, tries to kill him. And week after week, month after month, year after year, years, Saul is pursuing David to kill him. Just because he's, just because he's jealous, just because David is a threat, just because more people like David than they like Saul, Saul wants to kill David. But is there something else happening here? I would offer to you that Satan working in the background, is trying to kill off the offspring of David by killing David himself. I could go over image after image, picture after picture of the Old Testament. I've just given you a few. There's tons of them. Where, where, the, where the nation of Israel, the line leading to Jesus, is being threatened. There are times in Jewish history where we get down to just a handful of Jewish people. And yet God intervenes. All throughout this, Satan takes his best strike. Ta Satan takes his best swing at bat. And God always, 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 always overrules him. Every single time. Now jump to Matthew 2. I think this picture is as good a picture of what John is describing uh, as anywhere in Scripture of Satan's tactic. Look at Matthew 2. So we have the, the story here, the narrative of, of Jesus being born in Matthew's account. And we have here an interesting, interesting narrative. There are some wise men that show up. And they're looking to worship Jesus. So what do they do? They go to King Herod. He's the leader of the Jewish people at that particular time. So if this 
Messiah is going to be a Jewish Messiah, then certainly Herod, the one who's leading the Jewish nation, would know about this king and know where he can be found. So these wise men show up at, at Herod's house and they said, hey, we're here. We're looking for the Messiah. We hear that there's a king that's been born and we want to worship him. And King Herod is threatened by that. Well, if there's a king around, I want to know who he is. Not because King Herod wants to worship Jesus. King Herod wants to kill Jesus because he's a threat. So King Herod looks at the wise men and he says to the wise men, hey, when you find this king, if you could come back and let me know, I would love to go worship him myself. He's a liar. Well, after the wise men leave, they find Jesus, they worship him. Verse 13 of chapter 2. This is now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So God comes to Joseph in a dream and he says to Joseph, get out of here, head to Egypt. Because Herod is about to do something that is, well, unimaginable. Look at verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he'd been tricked, in other words, the wise men didn't come back. So Herod doesn't know where the child is. So here's what he does. He became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region where they were two years old or under. King Herod, a guy who believes in God, who, who tries to follow the law of God without hesitation, without a second thought, without even thinking about the consequences, writes out an edict and says every child in Bethlehem, every male child under the age of two is going to be put to death by the sword. Can you imagine being in Bethlehem on that day? As the soldiers come in and infants, and 18-month-olds and toddlers are being killed in the streets. Now listen, folks. You cannot hear about something like that and not come away with the understanding that there is evil at work here. Just as evil as it was for Cain to kill Abel, just as evil as it was for the whole world to turn against God, just as evil as it was for Haman to declare that all the Jews should die, just as evil as it was for Pharaoh to declare that those Hebrew children should be put to death, I want you to understand that behind all of that, is this other entity, this other being, this other person who is trying to fulfill a mission. And that mission is none other than to stop this from happening. Go back to Revelation 12. Now you may be wondering, well, who is this Satan? Who is, who is this? If he's real and he's not some kind of idea of evil, he's a real person or a real entity, a real being, then where did he come from? John describes it right here. Go back to verse, go back to verse 4. In describing this dragon, he talks about his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now John is seeing an image that actually refers us back to Isaiah and Ezekiel. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I forgot what it was. Ezekiel 28. And in those two texts, we have this imagery of, of who Satan is and how he came to be. So God in eternity past. Not only did he speak the world into existence at that particular time, but in eternity to pass, God created angels. Now, these angels are, are powerful. They worship him day and night. 
The Bible tells us that even right now, the angels are crying out, holy, 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 holy unto God. That, that Satan, at one point in time, in eternity past, somewhere back in time, that Satan was an angel. That Satan was created by God. And that angel called Satan was, was leading worship in heaven. Incredible, isn't it? But one day, Satan decides that God shouldn't be on the throne, that, that he should be in power. So, so Satan puts together this little coup in heaven and he gets some angels together and they're, they're going to gather up and they think that they're going to dethrone God. Can you imagine that? The created thinking that he's going to unseat the creator. Can you imagine the foolishness of that? We wouldn't be guilty of that, would we? I'll come back to that in just a moment. So Satan has his day. He thinks he's going to kick God off the throne, but what ends up happening, him and all of his followers get kicked out of heaven. He finds out who's in charge. And as soon as he comes down to the earth, the first thing he sets his sights on is God's prized creation. You know who that was? Adam and Eve. And then he sets his sights on this promised one that's going to come. And he works and he works generation after generation to stop the line of bringing about this particular child who's going to crush his head over and over and over again as Satan learns more and more and more about who this Messiah will be. He attacks and he attacks. And every time he attacks, God overrules him. Every single time. Look at Revelation 12. It says, But her child was called up to God and to his throne. John just kind of skims right over top of the greatest work that Jesus did, and there's a reason for that. John's purpose in writing the book of Revelation as directed by God is to present Jesus as the final victor. So in this text, he says that Jesus was born, and in that imagery, we have this dragon, Satan, pacing around. I would imagine that even in the garden of, even in that place of Bethlehem, even in that place of the manger, that Satan and all of his hatred is pacing and waiting because he's figured it out. This child was conceived by a miracle, conceived and a virgin. He knows that. He, he knows that, that this child is in the line of David. He knows that this child, this child that is in Mary's womb, this child must be the one. All that he's been waiting, all the plotting, all the hatred, all the attacks have led down to this single moment in time. The child's born. Satan leads Herod to try to kill all those children. He fails because this promised one is in Egypt. And then when this promised one comes back and he grows up and he's baptized by John the Baptist, you know what happens immediately after that? He goes out in the wilderness and guess who's waiting on him out there? Satan. Begins to tempt him to turn away from his kingdom. Tempt him to turn away from God. Tempt him, and it just goes on and on. And it's not as though Jesus was just tempted in the wilderness. Jesus has hammered every turn he makes, even in his own disciples. Even Satan begins to divide the disciples to wonder one day. Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus is talking with Peter, and Peter begins to deny, deny that Jesus will go to a cross. Well, all the way up to the cross. Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is sweating great drops of blood. Judas, Judas becomes a betrayer because of Satan's influence. And what did Satan lead Judas to do? To betray Jesus, to sell him out to the ones who wanted to kill him. All the while, Satan is in the background rubbing his hands together thinking, my day is coming. I'm going to have the victory here. 
And eventually he uses Annas, Caiaphas, even Pilate. The disciples are all gone. They've all ran away. Peter is in the courtyard denying that he even knows Jesus. Do you see how Satan is working all through down time and space to bring about what he wants to accomplish? And finally, Jesus is committed to death by Pilate. Pilate says, I don't see any wrong in him, but I'm going to wash my hands of the whole deal. The crowd is crying out, give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. Where do you think that came from? This crowd of Jewish people who know the law, that it's wrong to put an innocent man to death. How is it that they're looking by all of their convictions? It's because Satan is working in all of their hearts and all of their lives to bring about what he wanted to bring about. And finally, he's taken to Golgotha. He is laid on a cross. The nails are driven through his wrist and through his feet, and he's hung up between two thieves, and Satan laughs. He laughs. And then finally, Jesus, from the cross, says, finished. To Telestai. It is finished. No doubt in my mind at that moment, Satan and all the demons celebrate. They think they've won. Finally, after all this time, We've won. The one thing he didn't count on, though, the one thing he didn't realize is, is exactly what John says in Revelation 12, is that that dead man is going to rise, and not only is he going to rise, but he's going to ascend back to the Father. And not only is he going to sit at the right hand of the Father with power and authority, that same king is going to come back. And that same king is going to take Satan by the nap of the neck one day and is going to kick him right off into the lake of fire. So he didn't count on all that. This vision that, that John sees in Revelation 12 speaks loudly of this conflict that we are constantly engaged in. And my fear is, is that we've got a blind spot. How many times in the last eight months, ten months, when you've got a problem in your life, something that you didn't see coming, it's, I mean, it's just, it's just weighing down on you. How many times have you said this? Well, it is what it is. I've said it. Well, what is it exactly? What is it? Could it be? Could it be that you might be experiencing spiritual warfare? Now, listen. If we've got a blind spot spiritually, we're going to discount that. Oh, hell no, that, that can't be it. It's just circumstances. It, it's just some, a bad hand I've been dealt. It's just a, a bad set of cards. My circumstances are bad. But could it be, folks, that that this is spiritual warfare? And I would offer to you that if this is spiritual warfare and we've got a blind spot, that you are ill prepared for what's happening in your life right now. You are ill-prepared. If you're lost, you've never put your faith in Jesus, let me, let me just clarify some things for you. First of all, you are part of this kingdom that is destroying. We were all born into it. Every single one of us were born into the kingdom of darkness. We didn't have to choose. It was already chosen for us by our ancestors, Adam and Eve. When they sinned in the garden, it cast all of us into sin. There is none righteous. No one in this room was born into righteousness. Every one of us was born into darkness and sin. We were born into sin, and then we chose to sin. And then we chose to sin. And then we chose to sin. We decided to choose everything other than God for many years of our life. You may still be making that choice that I've got my life together. As long as I show up on Sunday, everything's good. Well, it's not good. 
If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you're part of this kingdom. This kingdom that lies, this kingdom that destroys, this kingdom, this kingdom that puts infants to death, you're part of that. You're part of that kingdom. You would never admit that you worship Satan. I get that. But there's only two options here. Either you're worshiping Christ, you've bowed the knee to Him, you've accepted Him by faith, and you've turned away from your old life, and He's your King. I think you get where I'm going next. Or that one that's leading darkness, He's your King. Either you've left that darkness and come in the light, or you're still in darkness. That's the only two options we've got. So Jesus overcomes, just as all the prophets said that He would. So if, if Jesus has victory, he certainly overcame death, hell, and the grave. The Bible tells us that when, when Jesus overcame death, hell, and the grave, that he basically gave Satan notice that his time is limited. That he's going to crush his head. It's just a matter of time. So if Jesus is no longer the target, he can't be. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. He's already had victory. He's already overcame. If, if, if Jesus is no longer the target, then who do you think the target is? Well, look to your left and right. You'll see them. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the head of your home, then you are in the crosshairs of this red dragon. Just as much as this dragon wanted to devour Jesus, get this, he wants to devour you. If you are a follower of Jesus, let me first say that you are going to have the victory. There is no way, there is no way that Satan is going to pull you out of God's kingdom. There is no way that Satan can pull you out of the family of God. There is no way that he can sever the love between you and your father. But I can tell you this, he'll do damage where he can. And he'll devour where he can. And he'll lie to you where he can. And he will bring things into your household that will steal, kill, and destroy. And if we've got a blind spot to what he's doing, if we're not even seeing it, then you are going to be a victim of his lies. I want to share just a few things with you of, of what I see Satan's work all down through the Old Testament. We see the manifestation of what he's doing. We don't see him. We don't see necessarily the, the demonic forces, but we can see how their power is manifesting in our world. And we've got to see it. If we don't see it, then we're going to be a casualty in this warfare. If you're lost this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never put your faith in Him, the fact of the matter is, is you're already deceived. You're already buying into the lies and the deception. Why do you think it is that every time the Holy Spirit begins to deal with your heart, maybe you were here a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week when I talked about who the shepherd is, and God began to deal with your heart. You know what that feels like, right? It's like you come to the realization that you're not where you need to be. You're playing a game. And you begin to consider Christ. You begin to turn your eyes towards Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you're flooded with all these excuses, all these reasons why now is not the right time. It's amazing to me. Satan will tell an 80-year-old or an 8-year-old the same thing. Oh, you got plenty of time. Oh, don't worry about it. You can, you can follow Jesus another time. Here, here's what you need to do. Make sure you've got a lot of religion in your life, right? Just go to church more. You'll be all right. But do not, do not put your faith in Jesus. Why do you think that is? 
That's because Satan knows where life is. And he will lie to you over and over and over again. Just long enough to where the Holy Spirit's no longer dealing with you. You can go too far. You can say no too many times. For those of you who put your faith in Jesus, you've got a crosshairs right on your back. And I want to give you seven things really quickly on how you can see this happening. I, I want to help you with this blind spot, okay? I, I want you to be able to see the world differently. That we Not only are we looking for God's work in our world, that we look for God in the creation, we look for God in all the beauty around us, that not only are we looking for God and His work around us, but we are also paying very close attention that this other being called Satan is on a mission as well. And his time is limited, and he knows it. Number one thing I want you to see, first thing I want you to see, is anywhere you see where God is being said as being irrelevant, God is irrelevant. Anywhere you hear that in the news, whether you hear that from another individual, anybody who tells you that God is irrelevant, which means follow God, don't follow God, doesn't matter. You can have whatever God you want. You can have all the gods you want. Your God can be money. Your God can be lust. Your God can be Buddha if you want it to be. But it doesn't really matter. You just be you and you be the best version of you you can be. Have you heard that lately? Be the best, be the best version of you. What does that really mean? I have no idea. I know this. But no matter how hard we try to be good, we fall short. That God is irrelevant and that He doesn't matter. Our nation's leaders, those who are claiming to know what is best for us, do you hear them name the name of God at all? Do you hear, and our Constitution names the name of God, that we are, that we are being given inalienable rights by our Creator. But yet, so many of our leaders never even mention the Word of God unless they're in front of a people who love God. Then all of a sudden, they'll talk about God all day and nowhere else. It's because, at the end of the day, they believe that God is irrelevant. Anywhere you find God being pronounced as irrelevant, you find Satan. Every single time. Second, if God is irrelevant, then God's truth is non-binding. What that means is, is that if, if God is irrelevant, then what God has had to say in His Word is also irrelevant, and you just live how you want to live. You do what you want to do. You do what makes you feel good. You pursue whatever you want to pursue as long as it fulfills your life. God is irrelevant, and obviously His truth is also irrelevant. It doesn't bind on your life. Why do you want to live your life in such a way where you restrict yourself our, our younger culture is being told to cast off all restrictions, all limitations. You live any way you want to live. That's what our young people are being told. I started hearing it when I was a, high, a teenager in high school, but it is magnified a hundredfold today. Just cast all that off. Don't, don't live like your ancestors did. They, they were too restrictive. You need to live life and live it to its fullest. So if God is irrelevant, number one, and number two, His truth is non-binding, then this leads to number three, questions are going to arise about your own identity. You're not going to know who you are. Is that not what we're dealing with today? Did you know that right now, as I stand on this stage, there's probably more, but I tried to identify as many as I could. Did you know there's 20 different possibilities for gender now? And it's growing every day? That you get to define who you are. 
And by defining who you are yourself, you really lose yourself because you, then you don't know, even know who you are. That we are to ignore biology, that we are to ignore DNA, that we are to ignore how God has created us, that God has created us with incredible value, and that, that somehow God made a mistake when He made you who you are. You see, wouldn't it be just like Satan to get us all confused about who we really are? Wouldn't it be just like Satan for us to begin to look at ourselves as being valueless, no values, no real value at all? Interestingly, just this week, and I don't say this lightly, I don't say it in jest, I don't say it to be funny. As a matter of fact, this stuff breaks my heart. That we have a lot of people in our community that don't know who they are. That don't know that God's created them with incredible value, regardless of their shape, regardless of whether male or female. Just this week, on Vogue magazine, the cover of Vogue magazine, Harry Styles, I don't really follow him, he's a musician, pop singer, early 20s, 25, 26, somewhere in that age range, poses on the cover of Vogue magazine wearing a dress. And the whole world's talking about it. I happened to catch a, uh, a feed on it, and I'm like, what is that about? Because I don't know much about him. I know he's part of a band, One Direction, that all broke up, and now he sings on his own, and it's pretty popular. But he's posing on the cover of a fashion magazine wearing a dress. And if you go to the inside, you'll see he's wearing several different dresses. And this, this is a couple of quotes. I want you to hear these quotes. This is from another um, celebrity. I'm not sure who this is, who said this, but another celebrity talking about uh, Harry Styles' um, pictures and article in Vogue. He says, this celebrity says this, to me he's very modern, and I hope that this brand of confidence as a male that Harry has, truly devoid of any traces of tox toxic masculinity, is indicative of his generation and therefore the future of the world. I think that he is in many ways championing that, spearheading that. It's really powerful and kind of extraordinary to see someone in his position redefining what it can mean to be a man with confidence. It's a guy wearing a dress. And that is supposed to redefine for us who we are. Now, the only reason that this is even controversial the only reason that this article is controversial, the only reason that that picture on the magazine is controversial, is because humanity knows there's only two options here, male or female, as designed by God. That's it. This wouldn't be controversial if there wasn't still some question about, hey, we're all born as male or female. You don't get to decide that. Embrace who God has created you to be. Another quote, listen to this one. Another observer said this, Quote, he is really in touch with his feminine side because it's something natural. And he's a big inspiration to the younger generation about how you can be in totally free playground when you feel comfortable. I think that he's a revolutionary. Could it be? Could it be that this is Satan's work here? It, all, it has all the earmarks of it. Could it be that, that this is not just people who are confused? But this is people who are being misled in the darkness and destruction, that they're being lied to. Now, if we've got a spiritual blind spot, we're not going to see it that way. We're going to see as well just, you know, more cultural stuff we've got to deal with. But if Satan 
is alive, and he's real, and he is, and he is a liar, he is a destroyer, then on the other end of all those people who are confused about their identity, guess what's on the other end of that path? Guess what's at the end of that path? Destruction. And this is why it breaks my heart. To not know who you are, to not understand that God loves them and has created them, male or female, to go do what God's called them to do, that breaks my heart. It's not something for us to be making fun of or lied of. It's not for a reason for us to hate people. It's a reason for us to love them even more. To teach them what the Bible actually says. So God is irrelevant. God's truth is non-binding. That leads to questioning your own identity. And then number four, it stirs up hatred for God in each other. I don't have to prove this one to you. Are we not living in a culture of hatred right now? Are, are, are you not feeling that or sensing that? I'm going to tell you something. Twitter, I'm not on Twitter. I don't have a Twitter account, but Twitter is a cesspool of hatred. You need to be careful how much time you're giving to that. Because you got little one-liners that have as their goal to rip other people to shreds. We are living in a culture of hatred, anything like anything I've ever seen. It has to do with race. Racism is alive and well. It has to do with political structures. It has to do with socioeconomic, how much money you have or don't have. Who do you think is behind all that? Who do you think is stirring up not only hatred for one another, but where does that have its roots? Hatred for God. We, we, we're, we're, we've moved as a culture away from just saying, I disagree with you if you follow Christianity, we've gotten to the place now where I actively hate you because you name the name of Jesus Christ. That's different. That's new. New to our culture, not new to other countries all over the world. Nothing new to them at all. Stirs up hatred for God and for each other. Fifth, where you see Satan at work, you see the destruction of the weak and the powerless. Is that not what we've seen all through the Old Testament as I took you through those big moments? Destruction of the weakest among us? That a, that a Pharaoh would kill infants? That, that a Herod, a Jewish Herod, would kill children under the age of two in Bethlehem? Wherever you find the destruction of the weak and powerless, you find Satan doing his best work. Where do we find that today? Well, since Roe v. Wade in 1971, we have aborted 50 million children. 50 million infants in the womb have been put to death and slaughtered. If that's not the work of Satan, then I don't know what is. Countless numbers of children have been put to death. Not only that, but in our nursing homes, our elderly who, who are to be loved, and I'm so thankful we got people in this church who serve in those capacities and make sure those senior adults are taken care of in those nursing facilities. But it's not like that everywhere. Wherever you find the destruction of the weak and powerless, you find the work of Satan. God is irrelevant. God's truth is non-binding. Questions then arise of our own identity. Stirs up hatred for God and each other. The destruction of the weak and powerless. Six, magnification of humanity over God. We're in charge. Ultimately, that's Satan's goal, that, that we are in charge, that we get to call the shots, that we get to decide what is best for us and we leave God out of the equation. And then finally, seven, radical independence from God. If you remember all the way back in the Garden of Eden, what was Satan's intent there? Satan's intent 
was to bring Adam and Eve out from under the authority of God and make them the authority. Did God really say you can't eat that fruit over there? Did God really say that? Nah, you don't have to worry about that. Matter of fact, God can't be trusted. He's keeping something from you that you deserve. You go eat that fruit. You see, the idea was is that Satan was playing into our God complex that we want to be in control, that we want to call the shots. We want to be radically independent from the Creator. Satan's tactics really haven't changed. They don't have to because they're effective. Through these things, we see that Satan is very much alive and well, and his work is easily seen if we'll take the moment and actually see it. There are things coming into your household. There are things you're listening to on your AirPods. There are things you're looking at in the dark of night, on your computers, on your streaming services that is telling you that God is irrelevant, that is telling you not to pay attention to God's truth, is questioning your own identity. We're consuming these products. We're consuming them, and as, as we consume them, we think, oh, it's no big deal, it's just entertainment, it's, it's just music, it's just another sitcom or a miniseries. But if, these, if this media has these things as part of what they're doing, making fun of the God you love, telling you that you live your life any way you want to live, that they glorify the destruction of the weak, then maybe we've got a blind spot. And if we've got that blind spot long enough and that stuff is coming into our house and into our life, video games, video games that are ungodly, video games that if I were to throw it up on the screen right now in this building, you say you're a crossfire, if I would have put it on the screen, you would sleek under your seat, embarrassed of what's on the screen. But yet, a cover of darkness in a back bedroom somewhere, we don't even give it a second thought. It's because we've got a blind spot. And if we've got that blind spot long enough and we, we keep looking away, we keep explaining away, and we keep saying, oh, it is what it is. Oh, it's just a little bit more entertainment. We keep doing it long enough. Well, you know where it's going to lead. It's going to destroy. It's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to destroy your testimony. It's going to destroy your witness. It can even destroy your life. So do you have a blind spot? Are there things that are creeping in over here while we're looking over here? If, if you're lost, then all you have is blind spot. If you're lost and you've never put your faith in Jesus, then all you've got is blindness. But I believe some light is beginning to penetrate that darkness. Satan's going to give you every reason in the world to ignore that little bit of light. He's going to give you every, that Holy Spirit is drawing you. Satan's going to say, oh, just, just ignore that. You've got plenty of time. That's a lie. Recognize it for what it is. It's a lie. Respond to the light you've been given. Jesus will change your life. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Christmas season. Behind all the lights and the presents and getting together with family, um, we recognize that all that points to, to you. We, we recognize that those lights on our tree represent the light of the world. We, rep, we, we understand that that evergreen tree speaks of life, even in the harshness of winter. Those gifts that we give to one another, it speaks of a greater gift, a gift that was very costly, 
but is free to all who will receive it. But Father, in our, in our hurried pace at Christmas, I'm afraid that that blind spot can get really large. And in all of our hustling and all of our running, that while we've got our eyes on something else, even celebrating Christmas, that things are creeping into our life that can bring destruction. Well, help us to see it for what it really is. Just as Satan's been working all down through the ages, he continues to work, and his target, his target now is the church. His target are those who name the name of Christ. Father, may we recognize that spiritual warfare is alive and well, but it won't last forever. Just as you defeated Satan in the garden, just as you defeated him with the flood, just as you defeated him with Esther and Haman, just as you defeated him as King David rose to the throne, just as you defeated Herod in his attempt to kill the Messiah, just as you defeated Satan when Jesus died, was placed in a tomb and resurrected the third day, he is defeated forevermore. For those who name you by faith, we're no longer under his power, no longer in his kingdom. So Father, may we choose wisely what we let into our lives. Father, for those who've never put their faith in you. May your light penetrate the darkness. And may they respond by faith and repentance. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 